0: This is Issues in Perspective with Dr. Jim Ekman, President of Grace University. Issues in Perspective provides a weekly overview of news that pertains to your Christian life and is designed to help you discern and interpret issues that affect you in light of God's truth. Here is Dr. Jim Ekman to help you think biblically about these issues. Welcome and thank you for being with me today on our program Issues in Perspective. As many of you know, I have announced my retirement as Grace University's president, effective the 30th of June, 2012. An important aspect of my retirement is the decision to end the radio edition of Issues in Perspective. Therefore, this weekend of 28-29 January 2012 is the last radio broadcast of Issues in Perspective. However, I will continue writing the weekly edition of Issues in Perspective, which you can access at www.issuesinperspective.com, and the archive of past editions of Issues will remain at that site. Thank you for being a faithful listener and supporter of Issues in Perspective. To have had this radio ministry for nearly 20 years has been one of the joys of my life. I hope you will continue to read Issues in Perspective at the website, www.issuesinperspective.com. In our first perspective, therefore, on the program today, I want to ask you a question. Are you guilty of speciesism? One of my favorite writers is Andrea Sue, who writes for the magazine World. In her most recent column, she writes of reading through a bird magazine that she bought at a local pet smart store where she lives. One article, particularly in this magazine, caused her to write of the author, quote, By the end of her remarks in her article, I felt just a little bit ashamed of being a human being. It's hard to put your finger on a tone of voice, but here's a sampler, as she quotes from the magazine article. We love our avian family members and know they love us. Unfortunately, we often hinder the development of a deeper or more precious relationship with them because of how we have been trained to think of animals. As humans, we are hindered by our egocentric tendency toward assessing intelligence by how much an animal thinks or behaves as we do. Their ability to adapt to our world is usually far superior to our ability to function in theirs. The animal world, she writes, possesses a state of sophistication that is inconceivable and unattainable to most human beings, yet we like to hold ourselves above it. Close that quote from an article that Andreas Sue is quoting. Wow! After I read what Sue quoted from that article, I too felt almost guilty that I'm a human being. Perhaps, therefore, C.S. Lewis provides an antidote to our perceived guilt. He observes that the problem is not that we love animals too much, but that we love God and other human beings too little. In Lewis's book, The Four Loves, he wrote, "...it is the smallness of our love for God, not the greatness of our love for the many, that constitutes the inordinacy." And that quote... There's a clear creation order distinction in the Bible. Humans are created in God's image, not cats. Jesus declared that humans are worth more than birds, even though God cares for both. Furthermore, humans are the ones whom God declares to be a little lower than the angels, not dogs. How, then, do we think biblically about such a subject? Francis Schaeffer once argued that the church needs to be, these are his words, a pilot plant where the proper relationships between human beings and the physical world is modeled. The church, he states, must be a place where men can see in our congregations and missions a substantial healing of all divisions, the alienations man's rebellion has produced. This macro plan for reconciliation must begin with the church. And it involves five dimensions. One, humans properly related to God. For any type of reconciliation to occur, humans must trust Jesus Christ for salvation. This is what the Apostle Paul meant when he referred to his ministry as one of reconciliation. You see that in Second Corinthians 5. Reconciling God and humanity through the finished work of Jesus Christ. Humans will never exercise proper God-honoring stewardship toward birds, dogs, or other humans without first being reconciled to him through Christ. Second is the human being properly related to self. Humans must see themselves as God sees them, of infinite value as creatures and In Christ as redeemed. Because we have God's view of self, there is a proper respect for the body as eternally significant. A mark of the redeemed Christian is a commitment to care for and respect one's body. It belongs to God, and to allow it to be an instrument of sin or to treat it with disrespect is to say something about God, for He created and redeemed it. The Christian is no longer independent, but forever dependent on the Lord who purchased him. Third, not only humans properly related to God, humans properly related to self, but humans properly related to other humans. Because we now have Christ's mind, Christians view other human beings through God's eyes Christians treat all humans with respect, realizing shared creatureliness and shared value as image bearers of God. This is at the heart of Jesus' command to love God with heart, soul, mind, and strength, and our neighbors as ourselves. The Good Samaritan story in Luke 10 powerfully illustrates how one loves one's neighbor. All humans, redeemed and unredeemed, are value and worth to god fourth humans properly related to nature human beings are to treat all spe- aspects of god's physical creation with respect and honor if all god's creation is good which he declares then his disciples must have the same regard he has it is ethically wrong to destroy wantonly what god has created The non-human creation serves human beings. That is the point of having dominion status, which we see in Genesis 1 and Genesis 9. But humans serve God's creation with respect and honor. We are God's stewards representing him, and stewardship implies accountability to him. So it matters how we treat the birds, and, and it matters how we treat dogs and cats and cattle and everything else. But they serve us because we have dominion status. All the particulars of God's creation are not equal. There is a creation order to God's world. And then finally, humans not only were properly related to nature, but nature properly related to nature—a strange way of putting it. But that is what Romans 8, 20 through 20 three actually argues. It makes clear that the present groaning of creation, they are Paul's words in that passage, await the return of Jesus, when all of nature will be restored. Then nature will be properly related to nature and the horrific consequences of human sin that so wreak havoc on the physical creation will end. In nineteen eighty eight, a number of years ago, Mother Teresa And James Lovelock, an advocate of the Gaia hypothesis that the earth is a living creature, got into an argument at Oxford University's Global Forum for Survival. Mother Teresa argued that if we take care of people on the planet, the earth will survive. Lovelock countered that if we take care of earth, humanity's problems will be solved. In light of God's word, both are needed. God makes it clear that if there is repentance and cleansing, he will cleanse the earth as well. There is a crying need for balance, focusing on human beings and focusing on the animals and the earth. Both are important to God. He created both for his glory, but only human beings have dominion status. Only human beings experience redemption, and it is only for human beings that Jesus died. He is in the process of reconciling this fallen world to himself, but he is accomplishing that through redeeming human beings who bear his image and for whom he died. There is a creation order to God's world and, and an environmental approach to all aspects of God's world that honors him, always keeps that as the first and foremost premise. In our second and actually final perspective on the program today, I want to think with you about Mitt Romney's wealth and the state of the Republican Party. The rather shocking outcome of the South Carolina primary is a metaphor for the state of the Republican Party, in my opinion. During the campaign in South Carolina, and especially during the major debate right before that primary last weekend, the wealth and taxes of Mitt Romney seemed to be the primary issue. It was amazing to watch Newt Gingrich, and to some extent Rick Santorum, portray Mitt Romney in a way that raised issues about his character— and the entire issue of fairness. In one way, these candidates attacking Mitt Romney sounded like Democrats utilizing their populist class warfare line. It was almost unbelievable to watch. As the columnist David Brooks has written, Mitt Romney is a rich man. But is Mitt Romney's character formed by his wealth? Is Romney a spoiled, cosseted character? Has he been corrupted by ease and luxury? Three important questions that Brooks raises. Well, such a notion is, quite frankly, preposterous. In fact, nothing could be further from the truth. Romney has worked very hard all of his life. He earned two degrees at Harvard University simultaneously, one in law and one in business. He built a very successful business, and there has never been any evidence of corruption or unethical behavior during his days at Bain Capital. As a Mormon, he has given significant amounts of his wealth to the Mormon Church and other charities, far more proportionately and far more in real dollars than Newt Gingrich, Rick Santorum, or President Obama. Brooks writes that his salient quality is not his wealth. It is, for better or worse, his tenacious drive, the sort of relentlessness that we associate with striving immigrants, not rich scions. He may have character flaws, but Romney does not have the character flaws that normally are associated with great wealth. Close that quote. Personally, and this is a very personal comment, I have been offended and outraged about what Gingrich and Santorum have said about Romney, and the snide remarks and subtle suggestions that his tax rate of 15% is somehow evidence of devious behavior or something that is illegal or unfair is despicable. If Gingrich wants to have a debate about Romney's wealth or his tax rate, he should permit Romney to go after how he, that is Gingrich, has become so wealthy. There are serious ethical issues in his life, that is, Gingrich's life, and to be honest, there are serious and profound character issues that do reflect on his ability to govern and to serve as President of the United States. I do have serious reservations about Mitt Romney, but none of those reservations has anything to do with his wealth, his role at Bain Capital, or his tax rate. There is absolutely no shred of evidence that anything about Romney's life, his business, or his tax rate is illegal or unethical. Because of what is occurring, the Republican Party is almost on the verge, it seems, of self-destructing. So several additional thoughts. First of all, Both the Tea Party movement and the Occupy Wall Street movement have raised questions about economic freedom and inequality. Their arguments have been generally vague, ideological, and unhelpful. Elements on the right reject the whole idea of distributive justice, opposing most taxation as theft and embracing a utopian project involving abolition of the modern state, so writes Michael Gerson. Elements on the left seek a substitute for capitalism, a utopian project that has been tried and found frightening. Anybody who embraces anything like this has absolutely no understanding of history, has no understanding of what has happened in China or the former Soviet Union or Cuba, or indeed in that horrible nation called North Korea. The political debates on free markets... Or the privileges of the one percent seldom touch on the actual struggles of citizens, say, living in a shadow of foreclosure, or tending a failing school or serving in a gang-occupied neighborhood. The ideology of the Occupy Wall Street movement or of the Tea Party movement is abstract. Hardship is living concretely. What is occurring in our nation right now is rather astonishing. We have had three years of almost reckless spending that has dangerously increased the national debt, all the while leaving unemployment high and the economy stagnant. In addition, President Obama has vastly increased the entitlement obligation of future generations through his health care law and has instituted a whole new array of regulations that stifle economic creativity and growth. But the Democratic Party and now the Republican presidential candidates are changing the issue of this campaign from President Obama and his record to issues of fairness and inequality, and their focus is Mitt Romney. The image is one of Romney being greedy, with the illusion that all wealthy people are greedy and have pillaged the remaining 99% and have thereby robbed the middle class of all hope. Newt Gingrich, Rick Perry, and now Rick Santorum are making the case that private equity as practiced by Romney's Bain Capital is nothing more, and these are the words they're using, than vulture capitalism. As columnist Charles Krauthammer has observed, quote, The assault on Bain Romney instantly turns Obama's class warfare campaign from partisan attack into universal complaint. Suddenly, Romney's wealth, practices, and taxes take center stage. This is no mainstream media conspiracy. This is the Republican Party maneuvering itself right onto Obama's terrain. It is, quite frankly, mind-boggling. Secondly, as I have suggested above... What we are perhaps viewing, and it is perhaps, it may change, but we are, what we are perhaps viewing is something self-destructive. Dan Balt, who is a reporter for the Washington Post, correctly observes that, in some respects, the contest between Romney and Gingrich falls into a familiar construct of establishment versus insurgent. And yet neither candidate is the ideal to play his assigned role or, more important, to bridge the divides within the Republican Party that characterize many of the primary contests. Romney is not a very good establishment candidate because he does not fit the Republican mode. Is he as a mold of a Republican? Is he a moderate or is he a conservative? He was never a fervent supporter of Ronald Reagan, and his tenure as governor of Massachusetts does not fit into the conservative mold. The health care law passed in his state when he was governor is not a particularly good credential for a conservative. As many have observed, it is closer closer to Obama's health care law than most are willing to admit. Well, then take Newt Gingrich. Is he an outside-the-Beltway insurgent? Hardly. He has operated within the corridors of power in Washington, D.C. for 20 years. He's not an outsider. Therefore, the Republican Party is in the middle of a very serious identity crisis. What is the Republican Party? What does it stand for? Can it govern? Romney and Gingrich represent the contradictory forces within the Republican Party. Many in the grassroots of the party yearn for a fighter who is prepared to take on Obama in a strident and confrontational manner. If that's what they want, then Newt Gingrich is their man. But many who have served with Gingrich in the House when he was Speaker are not supporting him because he is a man of ideas, and a worthy debater, but he cannot govern, they argue. As Balt suggests, but many in the party also know they need the steady competence of a leader who is capable of restraining the worst excesses of a hard-right activist and translating the conservative rhetoric and ideas that unite the party into a governing strategy that can bring the Republicans a White House victory in November and success beyond. Quite frankly, no one really believes that's Newt Gingrich. It is the observation of many right now that neither Gingrich nor Romney reflects the character or personality of the Republican Party today. Unless, and until that issue is settled, what does it mean to be a Republican? There's little hope that at the end of the day, a Republican candidate for president can defeat President Obama. There is an identity crisis within the Republican Party, and that crisis could, and I emphasize could, prove fatal. Perhaps prophetically, Baltz writes, although they have a real opportunity to win the White House in November, Republicans may be in a presidential cycle that is one term away from a field of gr- candidates who are in more sync with the real identity of the party, who represent the party's future generation, and who are more capable of bridging the cultural and stylistic ex- gulfs that exist within the Republican Party. One could almost envision the Republican Party in a self-destruct mode right now, and if the party does not soon move away from this mode, They will have no chance of victory come the November election. This is one of the most serious developments for those who have profoundly important questions about the years that President Obama has been president of the United States. And they see an opportunity to deal with the fundamental weaknesses of his leadership as president, And of the decisions he's made, particularly those dealing with the economy, with entitlement programs, and with the whole health care situation. Is there a viable alternative right now to Obama? Quite honestly, there is not. And what is happening as Gingrich and as Romney tear themselves apart, and especially those unfair charges that Gingrich is leveling against Romney, is having the effect we'll see if it lasts, of the party in almost a self-destruct mode. What is its identity? What does it stand for? And which candidate basically and best represents those values, those ethics, and those standards, as well as the well-articulated program for the future of the Republican Party? At this point, we do not know the answer to that question. We will see what happens in Florida, and then the subsequent primaries throughout the rest of this spring. By this summer, we will know the answer to that question. What is the identity of the Republican Party? What do they stand for? And can they create a viable alternative to President Barack Obama? Issues in Perspective is a listener supported program and ministry of Grace University. You can listen to this program as well as past programs on the web. Just log on to IssuesInPerspective.com and click on the Listen to button. You can also find the link to Dr. Ekman's website by logging on to this radio station's website and click on the Issues in Perspective banner ad. Issues in Perspective depends on listeners like you in order to broadcast on this station and other Christian radio stations across the country. Please send your tax-deductible donation to Issues in Perspective, P.O. Box 3251, Omaha, Nebraska, 68103. Your generous donation will help spread the Word of God and how it relates to culturally engaged Christians in today's world.